1: Well, hey dude, it is good to see you. It's really good to see you live actually.
0: We don't do that very often. Live and in person. So, How's everything today? Everything is great. It's, you know, Friday evening. Uh, we're outside together face-to-face rather than over uh, computer and we're sitting, you know, next to the pool. We got a bunch of watches laid out in front of us and, and some drinks in hand. So uh, all in all, I'd, I'd chalk this one up as a pretty good pretty good start.
1: Yeah, right. Workday is done and we've got some mezcal laid out and a lot of watches and we're ready to, to talk a little bit, record an episode about an interesting topic. But before we get to that, man, what's uh, what's been going on? You found anything, see anything, do anything lately?
0: Yeah, lots of cool stuff going on as is usually the case. Um, stumbled into a really neat watch and clock repair shop. Uh, not too far, down the road here and i don't know why it was one of those callings right like you know when you when you see a store that you haven't been in before and and you're like this one might have some cool stuff and sometimes it's a dud and sometimes there's the obvious payoff and this was a cool one uh local sort of you know clock and watch you know maker repair person and it's a family they have had this location i think for um you know five ten years they were in another location not too far from us before that but uh, I walked in and lo and behold, there was about five um, JLC Atmos clocks just staring directly right back at me. And so I immediately hit uh, you know what I consider to be a, a, a worthwhile visit there and um, got to talking with with the uh, the young man who was there, the son of the owner proprietor. And it was just a really fun conversation and just really fun to see those clocks in person of course, immediately, you know, my head started, you know, figuring out how do I get one of these on a couple of the, you know, the mantles or the desks.
1: (laughs) So full disclosure, I mean, we, you know, we have a a lot of overlap in terms of where we live and work, um, you and I, and I've driven by this place many times lately. So uh, I couldn't help myself. And I also (laughs) popped in like a few (laughs) days after you. And yeah, it was absolutely between, you know, the guy's got a, a storefront full of like honest to Pete, you know, uh, grandfather clocks, but a lot of that, you know, like the mantel top grandmother clocks, cuckoo clocks, all kinds of really cool, um, like Seiko timers and, uh, little, you know, desktop clocks and stuff like that. But the, the Atmos really kind of pulls you in and it's just such a fascinating old technology. Um, I'd like to learn more about that for sure. So I feel like I have homework. I know at one point I understood them a little better. And but these are sort of more of like the more modern, maybe the last 15 to 20 years, the clocks that this guy has are, are quite a bit older. I'd like to see what's maybe different about
0: them or I immediately anything. went into a YouTube rabbit hole and I don't I don't fully understand everything, but it's, it's a pretty cool concept in the amount of energy that the escapement has to manage is such a minuscule amount that it's, it's a really cool technologically impressive, which we would, you know, would probably expect from Gégé Lecoultre. Right. Um, and they're just gorgeous. They're beautiful. Most of them were the, I think, if I understood correctly, as I did some of my, you know, real quick homework, there was sort of the white dial, kind of 12369 configuration, which was a pretty standard configuration. Yep. But there was a couple that were also um, in 18-karat gold and had sort of a tapestry dial. So there's really neat stuff. Anyway, it was a really cool um, visit with those guys. And I think, like you said, we'll be maybe making some, some more visits with them. And, um, but also just this past week, uh, made my way down to Long Beach for the Chrono Group event. Um, one of their first in-persons, I want to say this has been, there's been a series of the regional Chrono Group events. Um, Yep. Orange County OC Chrono Group did something, I think, earlier in the week or maybe a week ago, uh, and then it was Chrono Group's turn in, in Long Beach, uh and i believe S- san diego chrono group had something just last night
1: I, yeah i'm not familiar with what or where but i did see them posting in the past day or so it looks like they did have an event so that's good that's i think a good sign and we saw that our buddy mike Heymond, i think is on the road
0: he is he's on the, the road Pacific show northwest so he's, he's yeah
1: probably i assume he's probably going to see some some of the the peeps up there
0: it was awesome they did a great job as usual we probably had a good 50 some odd people at uh a neat location in, in Long Beach on 4th Street. I th- I guess if you're familiar with that area, it's sort of the kind of up-and-coming, you know, fun, hipstery um, spot. The place, the little coffee shop was called Coffee Drunk. Yeah. And uh, it was right up our alley because they, they do coffee, of course, right? They're just pulling shots, making great drip coffee. But on top of that, they're making a lot of original recipe kind of coffee mocktails. Okay. Okay. And so I had one that was called the Campfire. Yeah. And it was basically like a, like a, t- they, they described it as a, a hot toddy Americano with a, a bourbon infused syrup. Okay. Right? So you can, I, I can I, get you, behind that. You can get behind that. And the second one I had was a, a sprojito. So it was sort of basically a, a mojito with a spritz, you know, spritz. So it was a coffee cocktail again. Cold, this one was cold. You know, with some, I guess, soda, if I if I understood it correctly, and, and, and mint. So you, you get you get the idea.
1: Yeah, totally. Move over Irish Coffee. Oh. These guys got your number.
0: Well, I told them. I said, I'm going to take some of your recipes and start throwing booze in it. And they were totally behind that. But oh, yeah. But of course, they just want to serve regular coffee. I think yeah, that,
1: that's <laughs> got to happen at some point soon. And right. I
0: think just to be fair, too, I think it was also co-sponsored by um, Double Wrist, which I think is a, a new auction site. The way they explained it was it was sort of the bring a trailer for um, the watch industry and Heard a little bit from those from those guys about what they're trying to accomplish. And long story short, go go find them, Instagram on and on the web. I guess if you're if you're interested, but uh, trying to bring some transparency to the secondary market and, and letting folks you know get their watches out there in a easy and, and safe way and and um, you know sell them. And also, if you're looking to buy them, maybe find some great deals too. Yeah, that's cool. So that was the, that was what I've been up to. I feel like I've been busy running around, but it's been all really fun stuff. What, what, what's been going on in your, in your world? You know, honestly, not
1: a lot. There's been a lot of work over the past, maybe say two weeks, um, you know, uh, in terms of anything new, not a lot. Um, I'm working in a new area, so I checked out an AD here in Southern California that's you know pretty well known, but for me, I've never had an opportunity to go see them. And this is uh, Bindi, mm. it, uh, they've got multiple locations. This is the one in Glendale. So just kind of cool to go in there and picked up a copy of Watchanista. Ah, uh, I and need to grab a copy. It's a, um, a really interesting concept, the way they've chosen to kind of distribute this and drive t- uh, traffic to brick and mortar, which is a great idea. And um, yeah, I support it. So I haven't had an opportunity to really dive into it, but it, it looks like it's going to give other publications. How about that? Other publications, um, a, an interesting run.
0: Read between the lines.
1: Yeah, and there were some, I think one thing I did notice is that there are a number of embedded stories where the content is just a teaser photo and a like a 3D QR code that you scan really? to get the story to show up, you know, on a uh, on an iPad or an iPhone or whatever. And so instead of taking up additional space, it's just one spot. So for instance, they had something on Michael Caine, the actor. There's a single page, you know, of uh, kind of him looking dapper. And I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but if memory serves, it was a, uh, a gold Rolex Day Date on bracelet and that was kind of the picture and then the idea was you know you you take a picture of that qr code and it brings up the more detailed story and it kind of walks through his filmography but a lot of the the high-end watches that he wore or the highlight watches that he wore although some of them are pretty high-end um all throughout you know all the different films that he did and that kind of thing and there were a number of others too so just an interesting way to do that
0: i love it i think it's a really original way um i saw a funny meme the other day you might appreciate this it said um something along the lines of QR codes, uh, come back of the century, you know, so far, you know, I remember I was talking to somebody about this the other day, you know, QR codes 15 years ago or some uh, were, were seemed really pointless Yeah, and, and for a long time, they really still did. I think part of it was, you know, you had to have an app and there wasn't a lot of content built out behind it. Right. And now all of a sudden, all you do is point your, your your camera phone at it and it opens up exactly where it's supposed to. And there's all this rich content and they're super, super handy. I mean, restaurants loved them during COVID and everything, of course, because you know, everything was touchless, but uh, QR right. codes, I love them. They're pretty cool, actually.
1: Yeah. So I've, I've seen a lot of that too. And I think you're you're absolutely right. So anyway.
0: I'm really appreciating the the return of print publications. There's some really, I mean, the obvious ones, right? Hodinkee has been doing it for some time now in a really, really beautiful way and, 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 and thoughtful, um, William Brown and and a few other folks, you know, now watching Insta. So there's some really cool stuff. And, you know, of all people, I think watch nerds could really appreciate that. Oh
1: yeah, totally. I think we've all, we've discussed it many times, other podcasts, other, you know, platforms have discussed it, but there's so much overlap between our hobby and everything from, you know, luxury travel or adventure travel or whatever cars, um, you know the uh, the cigar scene, the adult beverage scene. That's kind of where we play a bit. Yeah. Um, and all of these, you know, hobbies or uh, areas of interest have, you know, in some cases, many like publications of record that yeah. are really good. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think and there's it's, a tactile piece
0: to it too. We like to touch things, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I'm much more likely to read and, and pick up something and go through a quick article uh, if I have it in front of me in a physical yeah. form. So, yeah speaking of what's on your wrist today so uh, yeah wrist check today um this is the uh the rolex explorer 2, the polar dial sixteen five seventy a serial so this is my swiss only and it is off of uh, the gray nato and on the proverbial bond not the the true bond like regimental bond but the um you know the two gray stripe bond nato And this is the full NATO. I have not given it its bris, um, so it is still, you know, completely intact, and I've decided I'll sacrifice wearing it a little higher, and I like having the extra hardware. It just looks a little more balanced and yeah so love this watch really really cool and just very low-key it it dresses down for a lot of things
0: it looks great on there and I I almost it almost feels sacrilege to take a a five-digit you know Rolex off its bracelet or any sports model for that matter but um, it's a really great look and it's very fun and casual and low-key
1: yeah yeah totally so I, I don't know I have some ideas at some point possibly of maybe having this be a candidate for a watch that I pass on to my kid. But we'll talk about that a little bit more Ooh, later. Oh, that's
0: foreshadowing if I've ever heard it. Right, right.
1: How about you? What's uh, what's on the wrist?
0: Uh oh, fun watch, funky watch Friday. I don't know what you want to call it. But um, this little Mr. Jones watch, uh, it's called the Last Laugh Tattoo Edition. They have a few of these Last Laugh models. It's essentially a jump hour watch with a, I believe it's a seagull jump hour movement in the back of it. Uh, or under the hood, and um, this particular edition has this very, how do you describe it, sort of, ta- uh, I hate to say Ed Hardy, because that <laughs> kind of comes across as very dated and not cool, this kind of tattoo, uh, illustrated um, perspective of a, of a skull, or a, a calaveras, if you wanted to, you know, if we're in Espanol, and, um, and in the, the, the skeleton, the skull's mouth, are a set of rotating um upper teeth and lower teeth the hours are up top and the minutes are down low yep um it's a very reasonable watch i think most people listening could you know jump on their website and, and grab it without really thinking twice about it but it's really fun and it gets a lot of attention whenever i sh- you know share it or if somebody sees it and um it's just really fun man and uh watches don't always have to be a uh expensive or serious or you know whatever and so every once in a while this just reminds me to you know throw something fun on
1: yeah well I think I saw these get a um, a bit of a shout out somewhere recently and I don't remember where it was I want to say it
0: might have been our friend James Stacy it was somebody on Hodinky, and they were there was a uh, you're right there was a set of watches that they were maybe just kind of fun or whatever and yeah there was a that's right Mr. Jones did make it onto that
1: yeah but it it is very cool and again that whole sort of uh, you know Day of the Dead motif or at least Day of the Dead adjacent. Definitely. You know, um, it's definitely motif very the is like is perfect for what we have in the glass. We're both drinking the same thing. Would you tell us about it?
0: Yeah, we're together, so that it made sense to finally bring this out and, and walk through them uh, side by side. We have some mezcal. Um, we have three mezcals. We have three mezcals um, in three different copitas, and we're going to enjoy them and compare them because it makes sense to do so. Uh, these were... Uh, provided by another a friend, a, a, a podcast, which is the Agave Road Trip podcast. So if you're looking for another uh, Agave Mezcal-centric podcast, check them out. And um, what we have in front of us is a brand called Sombra, which is a pretty readily available brand. In fact, I think they, they might even have been... They went through some repackaging. You probably have seen the bottles on the shelf. It's pretty affordable. Right. And uh, we have their, their regular Espadine you know, hoven, which is, of course, unaged, which is what most mezcal is, you know, in its, you know, pure form. Uh, and then we have two, what they just recently released within the last couple of weeks or months, reposados, which I think most people would associate with tequila. But it does right. happen in, in mezcal sometimes. And uh, it's a four month reposado and a six month reposado, meaning uh, the original hoven was rested in in barrels for either four months or six months. So tell us, I have an idea, but what is hoven? You do, um, hoven is essentially means young. Yep. And so, you know, that means it's just basically off the still, right into a bottle. And when you have reposado, roughly translates to rested, means it was rested in something, usually a barrel of some sort. And then you have your añejo, which is, you know, old, you know, aged, you know, or uh, years. And so that's usually, again, rested, but for a longer amount of time. So we have the hoven two reposados and these are called they're calling them reposés, which i think is a play on the type of barrel that they're that they were sitting in these were sitting in wine barrels um particularly bordeaux and so there's you know a little bit of a hue here you were and telling me these are limousine oak barrels these are limousine oak and i'm curious what we're gonna see across the three of them if we're gonna be able to pull each one you know from the other and if we like the four or the six month better or if we can pull out any of the wine and you know wine the Bordeaux um, limousine oak barrel influence so with that let's let's jump into it what do you say all right well I'm gonna have a sip here I've spoiler alert I've had
1: one or two quick snorts of this thing and we're talking about the mezcal. right you know and at first, like first pass through this, I'm not tasting like an overt wine influence, but I wonder if something about the wood and, you know, it having had some additional influence has taken some of that, um, like that phenolic kind of marine rubber, Mm -hmm. um, you know, smokiness. I would expect that there would be more of that on on the younger Mezcal. And this one, yeah, the Hoven, and this one does not uh, does not come across as like overly harsh or smoky at all. This is very drinkable.
0: Yeah, and I you know to be fair, I think this brand is a brand that is pretty accessible. I think you would probably classify it as you know mostly a, a cocktail mixer. But we you know we're enjoying the Hoven right now, and um, it's sippable for sure. I mean, it's yeah. it's you know I don't think it would hurt in a pinch or to introduce somebody certainly an introductory mezcal. It's got a classic what you would call Espadine profile, the kind of a little bit bright. Um, there's some citrus notes, uh, you get a little bit of that, maybe white pepper on the end, a little bit of a spice kick. It's not crazy. Um, you have a good palate. It's (laughs) well-trained,
1: which is years of practice, years of practice. It's
0: 45%. I mean, it's got, you know, it's got a little oomph.
1: Yeah. There's definitely, there's a green note on this. Um, it's a nice vegetal, you know, you can definitely, um, taste the origin of the plant. There's a little bit of sweetness. Yeah. Um, as I said, the smokiness is toned down significantly in a good way. I, I still haven't fully warmed up to mezcal the yeah. way I have with tequila, um, but this to me seems like a really good bridge. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's I I don't taste it in the mouth, but like as a finish, or as I'm getting air over the palate, I've got that like that pepper, you know, kind of feel. So it's I don't know, very good call, really good call.
0: Yeah. Let's move to what they would call their four-month repose. So this is that again, where we just what we drank, what started there, four months in that in the limousine oak uh, from Bordeaux. Right. And uh, let's see if what, if anything, is similar or different. Right off the note on the nose, I'm getting a little sweeter profile. You know, and it's so hard. You know, sometimes you might want to do these blind. You know you hate to be influenced but the truth is you know you see a label you have precon you know preconceived notions if you know what the backstory is you're, you you sort of train your palate to then sometimes match that but in this sense I think it was important that we knew what we were drinking hmm what are you picking up on this so
1: there was something sweet but not the um not the original kind of plant taste this to me tastes almost like pear mm, mm-hmm. like pear that's
0: been reduced like a re- a reduction of a pear, a pear reduction syrup. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: and yeah it's, it's really distinct for me
0: yeah a natural sweetness i don't i wouldn't classify it as an artificial sweetness definitely a natural you know yeah fruit based sweetness
1: yeah that's really interesting it's got a lovely color too
0: yeah, it's starting to get that, you know, I guess what you would call it, maybe a little golden, but a little pinkish hue too, certainly from the wine barrel influence. That's um, that's a nice sweet uh, sip. Uh, yeah, I, I like would that. imagine somebody who maybe likes things on the sweet side would really enjoy that. And you might be able to bring them into drinking mescal neat um, because of that.
1: Yeah, I think... Um... Again, as somebody who's not either doesn't really have a trained palate for uh, mezcal, and you know, to be honest, hasn't like I said, haven't really fully warmed up to it yet. This, um, to me, I would say, is uh, a lot more palatable than probably ninety percent of the other mezcal[s] I've ever had. And sometimes we've thrown you in the deep end. I acknowledge that. (laughs) No, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, but this one, I I would say, like I would have thought that the uh, the Hoven was a good starter and it was going to be hard to top, but that one's very good.
0: Yeah. Let's get on to the six month and then I think... Uh, Let me
1: talk some watches. Can. Okay, now this one...
0: Again, a sweet nose. A little deeper though. I'm getting like a deeper sweetness rather than... I don't know how else to describe it other than it's uh, a little more... A, there's more to the
1: sweetness. As it's getting cool and the sun is kind of going down, the birds are
0: gathering around and I think they want to drink. The Pasadena Parrots. Yes. This one I'm catching a lot more oak on, which seems uh, obvious, right? And if I said one spent four months and the other spent six months, like duh, of course the six month has more of an oak influence. But but it's clear. It, yeah. It's it's made itself very obvious.
1: I think so. It there's there's definitely more wood on this, but this I'd be interested to know. So in in the wine world. You can specify uh, barrels at, or, and or staves like by degrees of doneness in terms of the toast that they put on these. Correct, staves. yeah, that's right. I do and not so I, know the toast on this I would these. say this is probably quite light. So this is good, I like it. I Now, here's the question I have before we move on to watches. If we take, you know, photos of this label, um, are people going to be able to find this?
0: Yeah, I think they can. Definitely the Hoven. I think even it's, it's honestly so accessible you'd probably find it at like certain grocery stores. because right, i hate to at. go through all these and then it's like, <laughs> yeah, you can't get it. Well, I've, I've been accused of that on my personal page of saying, hey, that sounds really great, but you, you just broke something out that's 20 years old or that literally nobody else, you know, most people can't access. Thanks for nothing. Yeah, that's unobtainium. Yeah, no, that's these, lot, these, these are around. Uh, final thoughts on this. I, I would personally put maybe the four-month repose. Uh, above the six month, I think it's just a little bit sweeter, but less oak influenced. Um, but between that and the Hoven, you know, it could be a toss up depending on what your palate is. If you like it, maybe a little sweeter, and you're not uh, ready to fully dive into maybe just a, a Hoven Espadine.
1: Uh, agree, especially if there's a price differential with the the older bottling. Um, I think there's not much to be gained by that extra, and the. Uh, the say the four month to me is more balanced. Yeah, I'd agree. And I, I think that's probably more sippable and as you say the hoven, great for uh kinda of a slightly smoky cocktail. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Well Perfect. that's a fun little side by side by side. Um we don't get a chance to do that too often, but uh yeah. you know, interesting nonetheless. So Yep. Uh, based off that what, what do you think? We got a, a main topic here, a topic de jour.
1: Yeah, and I'm not really sure how we would discuss this, but this is something that's come up in conversation a few times lately between us. Um, I've talked about it before on the pod early on, and it's been something that's come up on some of the um, the other pods, frankly, that we listen to. And we kind of have a slightly different take, and that's the idea of kind of having watches that are acquired or you know purchased or whatever with intention. And that is... Um, You know to wear and pass down to a kid so a watch as an heirloom and you know what kind of strategy should you pursue what kind of uh brands might be good choices um and yeah how that should be done i mean full disclosure our friends in another podcast you know there's uh, one of the guys on that pod has a particular strategy where you know with the birth of his kid like number one thing to do is get a watch that comes out that year that's, I think, you know, pretty cool. Uh, but are there other ways to kind of go about this? And what, you know, what are you doing? What am I doing? Because both of us are sort of pursuing something similar, but completely different. You know, my kids are are not grown, but they're almost almost grown. And I acquired watches for them much more recently. And I, you know, I went down a different path. So, kind of talk about that and and see where that leads us and see if we can you know fold in a little bit of rolex versus omega versus grand seiko versus other in this uh in this conversation
0: i think it's a super fascinating one and again it's one of those there's maybe a handful of topics that you know the watch fam loves to pour over and this is one that i think is is one of them you know, I, let me just start with where I think I started and where I'm at now, and I'd love to hear sort of your, your take on it. When I when I bought my first, what I would call, you know, real watch, right, we love talking about that, especially when you hear somebody's watch journey. What was your first real watch? Um, I think there was an idea that it would go, it would be passed down too, right? There's that sort of heirloom mentality to it. That was, you know, the GMT Master, the, the 16710. And- uh, Which I'm gonna fondle right here. After that, you know, grabbed a few other pieces. Of course, you know this has been gone over before. But but by the birth of our second child, it really started to hit me. I think in a different way. Oh, now what? Right? I didn't plan it uh, in my collecting that way. But you know, want to be able to share something with the firstborn and the secondborn? Do you make them somewhat equivalent? How do you how do you approach that? And so I've been racking my brain over this, quite frankly, for about <laughs> three years now, uh, give or take, and. I've vacillated a few times. Oh, I almost grabbed this, you know, and I think it would match well. And I think it would be a good, you know, counterbalance. Um, and, and right now I think I kind of know maybe which direction I want to take it. We'll save that maybe for the, the grand finale the this sort of, you know, the wrap up here, but, but it also got me thinking, and I've been talking with a few other folks about this and even mentioned it to you. Um, what if our kids don't care about these things? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the elephant in the room for a lot of us. Um,
1: And I mean, I'm looking, the writing on the wall with my kids is that I have one who probably is going to have an abiding, at least casual interest, because she's very much into jewelry and fashion and that sort of thing. Um, And then I have another kid who, and I have two girls, so that's another, a little bit of a challenge. It's another wrinkle. Um, So, you know, and uh, that's... That's definitely doable, but my, my older kid is not really showing signs of anything other than wanting to have something like that to, you know, because I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, but maybe not the kind of thing that she's ever gonna be passionate about or, or starting a collection or anything like that.
0: You know, it's the, maybe at, at some point, you know, if they're of a certain age or they spent time with you looking at them, discussing them, wearing them, maybe there's all, all of a sudden there, there is a shared interest that's been developed. Or and or, maybe they just always saw it on your wrist. And it, it, in my romanticized way about thinking about it, that's how I kind of—that's how I keep thinking about it. Pops always wore that. I remember that. How cool is that? I want a piece of that with me, at some point. And that's a very romantic way of thinking about it. But I think it's also quite possible. And when you listen to a lot of people in our community, there's a lot of origin stories that start that way. Oh, yeah. dad always wore, you know, an Omega Seamaster. Dad always wore a date just, and I never forgot that. And then when I got my hands on it, it meant a lot. And that would be really cool too. Um, Ideal situation for sure. Right. Yeah. I think for
1: me, I have, I have a slightly different origin story, but the, I think there's definitely no way that my kids have escaped notice, you know, that watches are a huge part of like my daily life and, you know, my hobby and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think that, that is going to be really more, I think the angle, um that I'm I'm taking uh, with the idea of maybe having one uh watch that I pass to each of them and I mean ultimately realistically maybe more than one like right we all you know well, memento mori but the um uh the watches that I've selected for each of them right now you know kind of fit their personality and that's I think one thing that I'm sort of happy about having gotten into watches in a, in a deeper way probably you know, maybe 13 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, my kids were already born, you know, and had been around and were, were walking around and talking and all that stuff by then. So for me, uh, I got to see a little bit of their personalities, and now I have an idea as to, I think, what they are like as individuals and what watches might suit them. And, you know, that's specifically where I went. I mean, I, I started with this watch. This so Again, I'm, I'm holding the, um, the White Dial Explorer two. This, I think, was the first thing that I acquired with the intent of you know, possibly passing this on. One, right. it's, it's a Rolex, right? I mean, it's, you know, obviously in our hobby, a lot of people have something different, but Rolex is kind of the start of, it's a big deal, kind of a watch. Um, but as a white dial, you know, it's just probably a skosh under 40 millimeters, and there's definitely, you know, a unisex utility to this. Absolutely. And the idea was, yeah, to wear this a lot, wear this on occasions, do things, have it be visible, and to pass this on. But the more, um, as time went by, the more I began to think, hey, you know, um, that might be shoehorning it a little bit, especially based on my older kid's uh, personality, and I went a different direction. And for her, I stuck with Rolex, and I stuck with white dial, but uh, I think for her, the watch that's gonna be passed on is uh, a white dial um, Datejust. 36 millimeters, again, very very unisex, um, but probably the kind of thing that's gonna be in fashion for a long time yeah. um, and it's just not gonna go out of style. And it's just a very simple, uh, you know, white golden steel, white dial, stick dial on a Jubilee. And will probably look good in a hundred years. Yeah. You know, on on her kids or grandkids wrist. And, you know, that's just ultimately what I wanted to do with that. And so yeah, I think maybe the explorer is sort of lost its spot in the rotation as a as an eventual hand me down. Although maybe, like I said, in theory all of my watches, you know, are gonna get
0: passed on. But Right, without specificity.
1: Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so that's um that's sort of the first thing that I thought of. Um, well, I think it makes you?
0: it makes a lot of sense, and and um, you know, from a brand value standpoint and longevity, you know, we can argue this, and I think we will, and hopefully, it sparks some conversation and debate. But I mean, Rolex, of course. I mean, that's natural, right? Why? Why? It's almost the most obvious choice. Uh, it's probably going to always continue to gain value. And it has you know brand equity even with non-watch people citizens. Right. There's an undeniable cachet. There's an undeniable cachet, and you know particularly when you think about that thirty-six you know millimeter date just. I mean that, there is a lot of timelessness to that. You know I, I think about that and you know maybe a Cartier and that's going to be like you said timelessly beautiful. It was fifty years ago and it's going to be fifty more years. So I think that makes you know a ton of sense and you know similar to you know your polar story you know so my 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 GMT Master 2 again a similar sporty Rolex model right. right similar proportions GMT hand you know there's a bezel you know to speak of um you know that was the obvious you know hand me down like we said and then i started to think okay well what is equivalent to that right well how of a, all of a sudden how does one child get a five-digit rolex and what is the other person supposed to get do i have to invest in two five-digit rolexes right (laughs) or is that not important are we overthinking this um which has led me on a few different paths on as i think about the second watch it none of them are going to be acquired in the birth year of the child yeah none of them are and that's
1: another thing too right to um to nail down you know do you how how important is the birth year aspect of things i have a watch here that I brought this is a, a birth year watch. This is my birth year watch. Yeah. This is a, a 145 decimal 022 Omega Speedmaster in great shape. Thanks to uh, my buddy Jimmy, watch fiend. Thanks, bro, for the hookup on this one. Um, and you know, this is a, basically this is a 50 year old watch that's had minimal you know service and it's just you know probably kept in a sock drawer, thankfully. And it's this is really important to me not just as the watch, but as a birth year watch. But I don't you know, I don't know if that's that important
0: or, or is it? Well it's a great question. I mean we I think we might even do a whole episode on birth year watches, you know, maybe for ourselves, but it brings up an interesting point about birth year watches too. Like how do you classify that? There might be different definitions of it and uh, who knows? I mean maybe You know, maybe the case was from a particular year. Maybe the dial was from another particular year. Maybe the service components and and, and service parts were from another year. You know, it brings to mind sort of the, you know, ship of Theseus, you know, if you're familiar, right? It's like that uh, thought experiment from old, you know, Western philosophy that, you know, as a ship kind of comes into the port every so often and needs new planks and boards replaced. And all of a sudden the ship is much different than when it first, you know, made its inaugural, you know, inaugural departure. So, um, that's a whole can of worms too. Yeah.
1: Well, and this, this watch is a good example. I mean, luckily this is mostly original and, you know, unpolished and all that. It's got a a good, clean, original bezel and dial and everything, but it does have, um, at some point probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was serviced and got its, uh, the chronograph handset replaced. So that's a, a service handset, the original, you know, um, hour and minute hand are are still there and they definitely look their age but the the chronograph like running seconds and uh the chronograph seconds are newer and it's got service pushers and crown and at some point probably you know maybe fairly recently it's got new plexi is it how original is it i mean in my mind this is still you know it's the chassis it's the movement it's um it's the the things that count it's the design right so this is a birth year watch for me but you're right the older these things get um you know by definition the less likely they are i think to be entirely original. So i'm holding your your Grand Seiko
0: seasons um spring. Yep. I believe right? Shin
1: Shinbun. Shinbun. Yeah, that's the SBGA uh, 413. So it's basically it's it's the pink dial, the yeah. cherry blossom.
0: What's uh where does this fit in? So this
1: was um definitely this was purchased with the intent if I bought the season watch for myself strictly for myself based on aesthetics and there was never any consideration for this going to one of my daughters I would have gotten the winter I think yeah but I although I really like the uh the pink dial here on the 413 but yeah this was um intended from the outset to be for my younger daughter who's definitely more you know fashion conscious and into you know hair and makeup and clothes and all of that stuff and she's like super girly and i think this thing comes off of its titanium bracelet and it goes on to maybe a um a really nice uh you know a high-end strap maybe a hermes or something like that and she wears this like that and it is this is 100 percent up her street you know based on what i know about her as a 16 year old girl and yeah so that for me it, With that in mind, the birth year angle is not as important as having something that's more, um, you know, more in line with who she is as a person and, you know, what, what kind of aesthetic she's probably going to value, especially since, you know, she'll probably get this watch, you know, in not too far from now. I mean, you know, she's in her late teens, you know, this is something I'd probably give to her in her early twenties after I, you know, put some more memories on it and that kind of thing, but... Um, yeah I don't know I think that's maybe another strategy that somebody could pursue I mean I'm obviously you know starting this late in the game with my kids being older and I'm, I'm sourcing watches for them based on what I think they like I think you could also maybe have a ten-year-old kid and you know work backward in time and try to get if you really want to get a birth year watch um, that's another option too so you know instead of uh, if you missed out when your kid was born You know buying a watch right away there's there's other options
0: so let me ask an inflammatory question yeah right so you have and they're beautiful in their own right and all the people listen anybody listening and anybody that we talk to would appreciate both pieces for what they are we don't have your your um date just next to us but for instance you have a you know what will at that point be a vintage rolex yep and a vintage grand seiko does that matter is that I have to assume the vintage Rolex is gonna have a higher monetary value. You know, at this stage, I think that's
1: probably true.
0: That's almost certainly true, right? Right. Um, It's not definitely
1: true, but I think that's likely. And yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think it does kind of matter. I think it has to be in the ballpark. Um, I think GS, Grand Seiko is on the come up. Certainly, you know, in our hobby, there's so many more people aware of it. I've got these magazine cutouts from back in like 2010 that I keep in a in a nerd book. <laughs> a nerd you know, book. where if I don't want to hang on to like a, a copy of Watch Time for like 10 years, but there's articles that intrigue me, I'll like exacto them out and put them in sheer clean. <laughs> I've learned
0: something about you today.
1: Yeah. So you know, I've I've I, my interest in Grand Seiko probably goes back to about 2010 2011, and I've really only had them. Um, in my own personal collection for the past maybe three years. But obviously, it's so much more of a a relative household name with collectors and enthusiasts in North America now.
0: And and, and to be frank, I mean, there's going to be probably a healthy, health maybe even a majority, but a healthy amount of people who would say, uh, quite frank, you know, the Grand Sequel Finishing, much higher degree. The technology, maybe even probably to a higher degree. Yeah, this is a uh, spring I mean, drive. I would
1: say that. There, there's
0: a lot of people that would say, technically speaking, and maybe even aesthetically, they would take the Grand Seco over a Rolex in a heartbeat. But the truth of the matter is, we're also talking marketplace. We're also talking about brand equity over a long period of time. So that's kind of the point of our conversation, I think.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, and then another thing to consider too is, you know, you're giving your kid, especially if we're talking about something like Rolex or, you know, something even more, you know, far afield, in price-wise you know so if you if you have the means to to do like the print ads you know and have the the patek philippe that you're um you know safeguarding for the next generation or whatever (laughs) uh but when you give your kid a rolex i think there's no getting around it now in the modern era certainly you're you're handing them some baggage too
0: yeah yeah that's a different story probably 30 years ago right
1: yeah definitely definitely um you know there's no, I mean, I guess, too, it depends on your, you know, kind of your social and economic circumstances or whatever. But, you know, there's nobody is raising an eyebrow um, or, you know, looking down their nose at you if you're wearing a Grand Seiko or an Omega of any flavor. Yeah. Um, and I I dare say most people aren't if you're wearing a Rolex, but there's definitely people, you know, who have, uh, have an issue with that. And there's also, frankly, there's the issue of like where... Uh, where does your kid, when they're an adult, you know, work and live, and is it going to be the kind of thing where, you know, you know, walking around, I don't, hopefully it's not that bad in, in future years, but where, you know, a kid has a
0: Target on their back if they're wearing a... You know, wow. I, I had not even really... Consider that as part of the calculus. I think
1: that's probably a really, really small part of the consideration, but
0: I mean, it's it just... it is, it's, but it's a thing. It's a yeah. thing, and we've we. I think we talked about it a few episodes ago, or you know, I'm sure a bunch of us have noticed. I mean, there was, you know, a bunch of watch related sort of you know, crim- you know, attacks and criminal activity that got a bunch of you know high profile stuff around L.A. and other parts of the world, and right. Uh, I think you'd have a healthy subset of watch collectors or kind of the watch fam who says, I don't wear my Rolex certain places anymore. Or maybe 15, 10 years ago I did, and maybe now I'm a little more selective about where I wear it, if I travel or, you know, depending on where I'm going.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and that's really, for me, the consideration is mm-hmm. if, you know, do you want to pass on a watch that's um, that your your kid would feel... Uh, Burdened by it. Yeah, nervous about wearing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I would like it ideally even if they're not, you know, watch person. Maybe this is their one watch. And I could see, you know, this Grand Seiko being a one watch for my younger daughter. um, If that's the kind of thing that she would just wear all the time every day. And in my mind, that would be pretty ideal, right? If I'm I'm passing this down as her dad is proud of watches and, and likes this kind of thing. I would love it if she made a point of being able to wear it every day. Uh, And I'm not sure, you know, if you can do that with a a Rolex all the time.
0: You've given me a lot to think about here. That was not part of of my my thought process. And, you know, it's interesting to sit here with these two next to each other because, you know, you and I have been talking a lot, as we always do. And, you know, I've got, uh, you know, maybe some designs on on maybe something, you know, from the Grand Seiko line. And, And part of that thought process was not only personally do I want do I want that? But also, you know, that might complete the, uh, quote, unquote two package deal that gets specifically handed down. Like you said, maybe they all end up with somebody, of course, um, you know, but, uh, with some, you know, specificity anyway.
1: Right. And without mentioning the model, cause I think I know what you're talking about that the particular model also has a lot of kind of crossover appeal, you know, for a male or female kid. Um, so that would be a good choice. You have you have my support.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and in the mean in the meantime, we figure out how to move some chess pieces, right, and and, right. and decide you know how the how that all works, and uh, you know, well, it'll end up the the right the right decision whether you know to do it or not for all the the reasons that it you know that it that it will. But yeah, so you know, like what we love doing, this is what we do as watch you know enthusiasts. Is we like to you know do these hypotheticals. We like to romanticize it. We like to. Sort of plan for the future, and we like to we like to hunt. We like to always consider the state of the you know the watch box.
1: Absolutely, and well, I mean, I think everybody agrees whether they say it's the most the most satisfying part, but certainly the hunt is super satisfying for yeah. most of us. It is that opportunity to kind of get immersed and do the research and, and look at stuff. So let me ask you. I mean, I won't um, necessarily ask you to like call out the year of your birth, but if um, have you considered you know, getting your own birth year watch. Is that ever sort of something that's been a, an intellectual exercise for you? Have you ever tried to do it? Have you done it?
0: I have, I have, um, I've come across, I've, I've, i let that idea surface, uh, you know, and resurface from time to time. And there's sometimes where I'm really hot on the idea. I'm like, okay, this is the next hunt is to find that. And then there's other times where I think to myself, I don't know if it really matters to me that much. And so I don't know where it, it's a great question you asked, because I'm also, as I'm thinking about acquiring maybe something for, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm also thinking about just how many pieces in general I want to have, you know, and which, you know, everybody, you know, another, what great topic is, we'll save it for another time, the one watch you know, the one watch, oh, of course, everybody loves talking about this, right? And hardly any of us want to actually commit to that. And we, and we love the, 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 you know, the non-watch and then on whisp person that we come across who's a one watch guy, right? Or one watch lady and we think, wow, they really figured it out, right? Yeah.
1: The person who's got like one, especially if it's a clutch watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I know a guy who's got a, oh, I'm going to say it's like circa 1980, 81 GMT master. Um, so it's not a GM, GMT two. You know, it's um, but it's not the you know, earliest iteration. And this guy is a uh, like all of the textbook geek stuff that I'm into. So he's a, a farmer from Central California, um, but his career was in the U.S. Army and he was a, a, an officer in special forces. Um, and then he went into aviation Mm. he's you know he was a helicopter pilot this dust, is definitely your people. pilot yeah exactly um and that's his basically that's his one watch that's his one watch and that um that's the only thing i've ever seen this guy wear and i'm like man if, if you only had one that's a hell of a one and how like how representative of you know the stuff that he's done that um i mean that's very cole pennington adjacent
0: yeah 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 and, and so you know from that coming from that uh context i've been evaluating lately and i we've talked about it before i do not have a ton of watches i've purposefully kept it relatively tight but i've even gotten to the point where i'm like yeah maybe maybe there even needs to be less
1: yeah you know well if you make a few moves to acquire you know and bring in this particular grand seiko um that's that's probably going to be like a two or
0: three for one definitely yeah. easily yeah. yeah
1: so you might feel differently once that's accomplished yeah
0: and 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 you know that that sort of <laughs> i've i've played out this very again romantic idea i'm like okay well, what if i ended up with maybe four watches ultimately hand down one here one there and you kind of end up as a two watch guy that sounds really appealing to me as an old guy yeah, I don't know if I could ever get down to two, but I've, <laughs> I've thought of being—I've thought
1: of being like a three or four watch guy, sure. and I think that's that is eventually doable. Um, you know, if you if you still kind of cultivate any measure of enthusiasm for this, you know, this hobby, or, um, I don't know that anybody could ever really get down to one because you you'd you'd be. Constantly jonesing, I would think.
0: Yeah. It's a fool's errand in this community. If you're really plugged in, it's a fool's errand. Yeah. And we love, this is a favorite topic of our community. Yeah. But if the truth is, if you're talking about them as often as we are and listening to pods and consuming all the, you're not, you're just, you're not, it's very difficult. That's
1: right. So I I think I've told you once before on the pod about a guy I know, I I won't mention his name, but um, that's basically what he does. He's got one or two or three, maybe at the most, like significant watches that are kind of in permanent or, or near permanent, you know, rotation for him. And then he's just constantly bringing in like one or two things, keeping them for two to three months. And just, you know, wearing the hell out of them and getting a lot of experience and just experiencing new watches. But he's very disciplined about moving them on. And so that to me is a great way to to do that. Yeah. But you just have to really be comfortable with the idea of buying and selling because he's selling
0: probably every 90 days at least. Oh well, that's, I mean, that's another way to keep it fun too. Yeah. So I, I like it. I mean, it's interesting. Listen, at the end of the day, it's different strokes for different folks. It's, you're going to do what makes you happy. And sometimes collecting a bunch of things makes you happy. And sometimes having one thing makes you happy. Uh, and maybe you're somewhere in the middle. And, you know, that's why we love talking about it. Everyone's going to have a different perspective on it. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear from people
1: and, in- you know, get a sense of what, first of all, is this a topic that they're interested in? Do they, does anybody actively pursue this if you have kids? Is it a consideration? If so, you know, what do you do? Do you do like, um, you know, our, uh, our buddy on the, the Whiskey and Watches podcast where you make a point of acquiring a watch from that year in the year of the child's birth and basically bank that watch? Um, you know, or do you get a birth year watch looking backwards a few years, you know, retroactively? I think for a lot of people, if they come to the hobby after the birth of the kid, that's a no brainer. That's what you have to do. Right. Um, or do you do like what I do, which is, you know, I've, I've kind of waited to see what the kids are like and, you know, acquire something with the idea that I'll be passing it on to them, you know, not in 18 or 20 or 25 years, but maybe in eight or 10 years. And, but to have something that's a little bit more, maybe, um, a little bit more aligned to them, you know, is something that they're, they're likely to appreciate and like and wear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or some other strategy. Let's hear it. Right. I yeah. mean, there's um, those certainly are not the only ways to go about it. So we want to hear how everybody's, you know, skinning their cats. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. But not actually skinning cats. I don't
1: want any hate mail from PETA.
0: Don't. Yeah. Yeah, we'll keep that, let's, we'll put our spam filter on. So, well, let, let, let's bring it home. What, um, what's going on? What's something we should look out for? What is uh, some, some interesting content you've come across lately, watch, non-watch related? Love to hear what you've been checking out that's interesting lately.
1: Oh, well, what is this is not gonna be my recommendation or whatever, but what's to watch for um, is a, a steel and gold Omega Seamaster, uh, you know, the Seamaster 300, 300M um, on my wrist. I tried one of those and oh God, that put the hook in me. I have absolutely no need for it. I have the, you know, the steel black dial and, um, that's like a full kit watch for me, you know, bracelet, rubber strap and, um, and all of that. And, but trying that watch with the, you know, that yellow gold bezel, it's, ugh. hook line, not
0: quite sinker, but no, it's in no, there. No, it's
1: in there. It's, it's now lives. Yeah, it's rent-free in my head right now <laughs> so that's something um you know that is uh, i had not counted on and that like maybe that'll pass maybe that's a fever that'll pass in a few few days or few weeks but um yeah that's one thing the other thing though it, i discovered so as everybody knows by now i'm a complete aviation nerd and there are a few great websites to keep up on things and read and i i check regularly for something called hush kit so uh Never mind. I won't explain the whole significance of the, what a hush kit is. But hey, speaking of hush kit, I going to put that on this blue jay here. Who's our bird spotter? Is that a blue jay? It is a blue jay. Yeah, he's like right next to us. Anyhow, he's probably gonna sing again in a second. But bottom line is, an um, hush kit. It's a a great sort of aviation and aviation history website that gets deep into some of the nerdery and the things that I like. And. I discovered something fairly recently, and I'm going to actually pull this up so I have this. This is something called the Favorites, and it's a an RAF, so that's Royal Air Force promotional film from 1960, with a lot of footage of uh, the English Electric Lightning, which was a a fighter interceptor that was employed by the Royal Air Force, and it's this really you know weird looking, unusual like high performance jet from the 60s. The Brits love this airplane. Yeah. It's like for them, it's kind of like their maybe the equivalent to like the F-86 Sabre or something. It's just this legendary high performance jet. Um, you know, it protected them from the red hordes, right? Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but what was really cool, it's like, this is like a video time capsule. And it's, I would describe it as like a very, very low key, almost subliminal, like recruiting docudrama kind of thing. I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost cinematic in quality. It's like 18 or 20 minutes. And it gives you a sense – shut up, bird. <laughs> it gives you a sense of what um, – it's trying to kind of show the good side of life in the RAF. And it was just super, super cool to watch. And having – once you open this thing and it launches, it's going to open up like a complete can of like aviation history worm, you know, where you'll find a bunch of related videos. So if you are uh, – if you listen to us, if you – you know, listen to Gray NATO. If you listen to the Land Jam podcast, uh, Fighter Pilot, yeah, the Fighter Pilot podcast for sure. Um, you know, or uh, you know, we had Dan on. Yeah, moments, time. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you know, you have. If there's any any overlap with the interests from me or those people? Yeah, you owe it to yourself to check that out. It's really cool. Again, it's called the Favorites, spelled with an O. U. Of course, the way they do. Um, and yeah super cool and that has really nothing to do with watches or time or anything but it's uh I'm all about it so i' I'm,
0: I'm already queuing that up that sounds great I have uh two again not not watch related but sort of very much in the uh, interests of our hobby um, I read a really cool article on it's it was on online and it might be coming out on their maybe their next print edition i um, on the Atlantic, which is always a great publication, really far, you know, ranging topics. But this particular one was on, um, drive to survive the Netflix series, right? Which is super hot. Everybody, I mean, it's, it's gotta be one of their top shows. Everybody in the watch fam is watching, you know, F1 with real, you know,
1: real fervor, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people have an interest in it. And certainly, I mean, even if you don't, um, it's one of those things where I know a lot of people who've watched this, um, the drive to survive Netflix property and they're very much into it. That's me. Yeah, and uh, I did hear recently that it did get like the green light there. I'm sure they're already, they're obviously they're filming it, but um, there is gonna be a season four. Yeah. So that'll be great because uh, this is an interesting year. I don't know if you've been watching the races, but it's cool.
0: I haven't yet and I'm still catching up a little bit, but it, it's gotten me hooked in and, and the the reason I wanted to share the article and, and you might like this is the whole preface was that netflix and and specifically you know drive the drive show um they brought people in particularly non-europeans into a sport in a really interesting way that the four major american sports have not been able to do right so yeah there's all of a sudden a huge american interest in racing partly driven partly not saying you know entirely but partly driven by the success of this netflix show and because of the way that they presented the sport presented the personalities you know and also the way the sport presents itself where the american sports are very buttoned up right we always control you know the pr always control the marketing we're you know very you know formal and you know and, and and racing is not that way right the, the personalities are part of the beauty of it
1: yes i mean i think longtime fans would probably say that now formula 1 is is super buttoned up compared to the way it was like in the 60s 70s interesting. 80s interesting okay but um, that's how i don't know that that's necessarily how it is on the inside of the paddock behind the scenes but at the same time without this netflix series unless you really really followed like the 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 in depth like specialist media
0: Which many of us did, and not
1: not to pretend that this is you know the only entree. But yeah, you would never know, you know, a lot of the sort of the ins and outs and the um, you know the dramas and triumphs and tribulations and kind of what's the things that are on the line in in some of these um, these teams, some of these you know companies. There's sponsorships coming and going, and you know these these massive effects on teams, um, you know, chances. And yeah, I think this. The season four is going to be phenomenal because this season is, um, is a real, real – it feels like it's a kind of a turning point. Yeah. And there's this inflection point for the rules and different teams. And, you know, right now McLaren is suddenly – looks like it's poised to have, if not a return to greatness, then at least to be consistently a number three. Finally. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, McLaren was kind of always my, um, my first love as a team and uh it's great to see them doing well and but some of the dramas like and the, the back and forth the tug of war i mean if that can continue for the rest of the year between you know lewis and max um it's going to be awesome it's going to be like you know the nineteen seventy six. I think it was seventy six. But yeah, you
0: know, and it's become appointment viewing, right? I mean, you can't miss it if you're really into it now. And you're yeah. you're live, and so anyway, check out the article. I think everybody here would love it too. Um, we'll link it maybe in the show notes on the Atlantic. And again, the whole point was that you know this show was has really pulled people into a sport that probably really wouldn't know much about it in a way that the four major american sports would die to have you know bring new eyeballs yeah and and the sport needs it yeah
1: f1 really 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 needs it in order to be i think um not merely competitive you know as a as a sports property but um you know as to be to be considered relevant you know there's so much kind of um you know, pressure on formula one in terms of, you know, sort of the the world greening up and and social responsibility and that sort of thing. And I personally have no problems with it. You know, I'm, I like air racing, which is probably a thousand times more, you know, noisy and polluting and whatever. But, um, the, the idea that more and more Americans are becoming aware of it, um, can only be good for the sport because that's always been an issue, you know, and there's no Americans really, you know, competing. Yeah. Um, and America we're very big on motorsport, and you know it's called NASCAR and which I think is gets a bad rep but I, I like NASCAR but it's not as fun to watch it's just not um, but you know the cars and the, the people and stuff are all you know cool yeah but um, yeah this I, I hope this will make be good for Formula One in general
0: the last um, piece of content I have is actually a show as well and uh <laughs> he was laugh. I have no my mother in law was over last week and she'll flip through and usually she gives me the room. She says, Greg, find something interesting. You know, she always you always find interesting things and she put something on and I just sat down next to her and I started watching it with her. And first I wasn't paying attention and then all of a sudden I my eyes shifted to the television. And I was dead locked in on what she was watching too. It was a show called Everest Beyond the Limit on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And a number of people probably have seen this. I hadn't been familiar with it. It's from 2007, but it chronicles. And there's more than one season, I think, if I understand correctly. Yeah. But it, this first season was chronicling a team as they summited Everest in the year 2006. Okay. So it's essentially, you know, a docu series, but it's very much in like the reality television. Um, Mode, and I don't mean to say that that it's you know uh, uh, produced in a certain way or uh, uh, that they're re-recording things for not like an MTV reality show. I just mean it's a reality style show, week to week, you know, episode to episode, as builds on the previous episode, and they're you know, it's a group of maybe uh, six or eight um, people who are summiting Everest with one particular climb, you know, outfit. And uh, it's, it was just incredibly riveting, you know, just the triumphs that they experience, um, the complete letdowns that they experience, and then of course just, you know, the health risks that they're putting themselves at, and, and, and it was just super fascinating. And again, it's, it's at this point 14 years old. I imagine a number of people have seen it. This is not new media, but it for sounds, me it was.
1: It sounds familiar, but it's the kind of thing that I would probably want to look into um, that's, uh... I think the last time around I mentioned the horn. Yeah. And, you know, that's um, a similar kind of a thing. And yeah, um, I'll check that out for Super sure. Super
0: cool. I mean, one guy, the, I'm not giving anything away, but you know, one, one gentleman is asthmatic. Yeah. But he decides not to use any air as they, as they yeah. approach the he's peak. He's got no O2? No O2, and it was important to him as an asthmatic to, to do that accomplishment and show other asthmatics that they can do it too. And you know, so he's going through his, his physical challenges of trying to accomplish that. I don't think it had been done maybe at the time or something, You know, again, yeah. this is older. And another gentleman had double amputee. Oh, wow. From a climbing, from a climbing accident. That's incredible. And he's attempting to, to, to peak. It's a, it's a really fascinating you know, people story. Yeah, for sure. But obviously, you know, a lot of people in, in our in our community love, um, you know, climbing and and, and expeditions and, and things like that. So
1: adventure sports and watches. That's it. Yep. Yep. Like peas and carrots. <laughs> well, what do you think, Matt? Well, I think uh, this has been a good ad hoc talk. It's um, it's good. I know we have some guests lined up. We had a, a kind of a, a catastrophic <laughs> failure on the last recording. So. But we'll hopefully get that uh, that guest, we won't say who, but we'll get that person hopefully uh, rescheduled in the next, you know, one to three weeks. And then just, um, I think we've got a bunch of stuff actually really lined up. Um, possibly another uh, beer ride share a with our friends at the Out of Time podcast.
0: And the wheels, you know, our wheels pun intended, I guess, on the bicycle ride, but our, our, our wheels have been turning a lot and we're thinking, you know, maybe there's some fun ways to expand content. You know, we love the pod and it's going to be our main vehicle, but maybe there's other ways that we can continue to engage people and drive conversation and, um, sort of, you know, flex, uh, you know, our, our creative side, if we have any, I don't even know if we do. I'm, you know what, uh, I'm minimally
1: creative, but I'll, (laughs) I'll work on it, but no, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good teaser. You know, there's, um, watch this space more stuff coming and it should be fun um a number of people have kind of reached out to talk about you know cross-pollinating different podcasts different blogs and you know as we just uh you know as working people with family we just have to make time for it but there's a lot of stuff out there so good yeah stuff
0: stay tuned folks cool
1: all right well hey with that i think we'll go ahead and uh and sign off and everybody hope you guys enjoyed the episode thanks for listening. Cheers.
0: hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at spirit of time podcast and contact us at spirit of time podcast at gmail.com.
1: As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.